Holy crap. It's the only way I can describe it, guys. I actually found the audio because I had to bring it to you in full. It's nuts. Now, the real fireworks don't take place until the end. Oh, goodness gracious. The real fireworks, you got to wait for, but the whole thing is just terrific. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. 833 got Tony. 833-468-8669. I'm talking about Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci. This is not a COVID conversation. I swear to you. All right, there are a couple of COVID conversations out there, but like that, it's it's that's not important. It's pretty rare when a doctor looks at a senator and says, You're trying to get me killed. Holy mackerel. So this is, uh, you've, you've got Dr. Fauci and you've got uh, a Dr. Walensky of the CDC and a host of others there in front of, uh, the, I think it's the Senate Health Committee. And as we all know, the CDC cannot explain what it is that their rules are. They can't do it. Democrats like Senator Patty Murray of Washington State are accusing Republicans of misinformation, but it wasn't Republicans who said that 100,000 children are in hospitals on ventilators with COVID. That was partisan justice Sonia Sotomayor. Sonia Sotomayor is getting backup for her ridiculous claims by Sonny Hostin of The View, who said, well, she wasn't right, but she's still right. Well, first, I just want to reframe this a little bit about Justice Sotomayor, because um, while, you know, she may not be accurate for current hospitalizations um, in children, she is correct that we have more children in the hospital uh, now more than ever before. Um, and it certainly reflects the current cases in children. Right now, we have 82,843 um, children uh, sick with, with COVID. More than 1,000 children have died from the virus. Um, and in addition, uh, about 7.8 million children have caught COVID since uh, the pandemic started. If 7.8 million children had COVID and a thousand have died, I cannot in my head come up with the decimal points of percentages. I won't argue that it's horrible. I'll argue that in, in view of 7.8 million children getting it in terms of a symptomatic way, that's unbelievably low. And no amount of lockdowns or vaccines are a differentiator. Kids in the main don't get COVID. I am not anti-vax. I have real issues with vaccinating children. I don't think we have enough data. I would argue, you know, what a, what a 50-year-old does, what a 35-year-old does, somebody who's already had kid does, okay, that's, that, that's one thing. Somebody who's got their life ahead of them, it's different. And I think a lot of parents see it that way as well. But the justice said that there were 100,000 kids with COVID. And that's not the case. She got it wrong by 96.5%. But this back and forth between Fauci and Rand Paul is where the story is. Not Sonny Hostin of The View doing her job and protecting her allies, her ideologically rigid allies, even though they lie through their teeth. I wouldn't let Justice Sotomayor engage in a ruling on this case regarding mandates. She doesn't even know the data. 
between her and Rep- and, and Justice Breyer, you don't know who's dopier. But this was something else. This between Fauci and Rand Paul is just amazing. Amazing. This fight that they are having. Surreal. Surreal. And it's it is crazier than this gem from Fauci right here. Has he done a good job? You know, I think given the circumstances that we're in right now, I believe he's done a very good job. He's talking about President Biden. More people are dead under Biden's watch than Trump's watch. How can you say it's a very good job? They told you to order home tests. He never ordered the test. Now nobody has a test. He said he was going to end the virus. He didn't do it and has so much as said so, given up his promises and said it's a state's rights issue or it's a state's issue. What's the very good job? I would argue he's done as well as you can maybe do. But that would have been based on a totally honest conversation about what we're dealing with. And he never had the honest conversation, so he doesn't get the easy way out. He doesn't deserve the easy way out. Now, this, this is the big story. This one is the complete and total Knockout. I- I'm going to interrupt. You, you just got to hear it to believe it. Central planning, whether it be of the economy or of science, is risky because of the fallibility of the planner. It would not be so catastrophic if the planner were simply one physician in Peoria. Then the mistakes would only affect that physician's patients, the people who chose that physician. But when the planner is a government official like yourself who rules by mandate, The errors are compounded and become much more harmful. A planner who believes he is the science leads to an arrogance that justifies, in his mind, using government resources to smear and to destroy the reputations of other scientists who disagree with him. In an email exchange with Dr. Collins, you conspire, and I quote here directly from the email, to create a quick and devastating published takedown of three prominent epidemiologists from Harvard, Oxford and Stanford. Apparently there's a lot of fringe epidemiologists at Harvard, Oxford and Stanford. And you quote in the email that they or from Dr. Collins and you you agree that they are fringe. And immediately there's this takedown effort. A published takedown though, you know, doesn't exactly conjure up the image of a dispassionate scientist. Instead of engaging them on the merits, you and Dr. Collins sought to smear them as fringe and take them down. Now, this part should not ever just go by the wayside. This is extremely important. One of the worst things that we have seen, and this is not a COVID conversation, this is a conversation about government and power, is that we saw so-called intellectuals, so-called experts, decide that other experts could not be heard from. Was Dr. Scott Atlas absolutely abused in the press and abused by people like Dr. Fauci? How dare he be able to speak? Dr. Robert Malone, that everybody heard on the Joe Rogan podcast. I know people have been interviewing him. And I got asked, hey, you're going to schedule an interview with Robert Malone. Uh, The interview already got done by Joe Rogan. What's the damn point? He did the interview. Quote the interview. 
share the interview. What, I got to do it on my own to be able to prove I can do the interview too? I think that's weird stuff, man. A guy does it right. Respect him. When I do the interview right, I expect, I would only hope people uh, share it. But we took doctors and we took scientists who disagreed with Fauci or with the press or with the CDC and those people got obliterated. It is the same ignorance as 97% of scientists agree that climate change is real. That's not an argument. That's crazy talk from pseudo-intellectuals who we should not allow to run our lives. It's nonsense. You allow people to speak in the public sphere. You allow people to engage. This is the way it has to be. This is what's important. This is what matters. But Fauci at all did not allow that. Let me take it a little bit further in the conversation. Fauci, or I should say, Senator Rand Paul asking questions of Dr. Fauci. Look what's happened what? so far. Do you think you, the lockdowns said- are good for our kids? Do you think we slowed down the death rate? More people have died now under President Biden than did under President Trump. You are the one responsible. You are the architect. You are the lead architect for the response from the government. And now 800,000 people have died. Right. So you think it's a uh, winning success what you've advocated for government? Um, Senator, first of all, <clears throat> if you look at everything that I said, you accuse me of in a monolithic way telling people what they need to do. Everything that I've said has been in support of the CDC guidelines. Wear a mask. Get boosted. And you've advocated to make it coercive and done before. Everything you've advocated to be done by mandate. You've advocated that your infallible opinion be dictated by law. Right. So again, Madam Chair, I would like just a couple of minutes because this this happens all the time. You personally attack me, and with absolutely not a shred of evidence of anything you say. So I would like to make something clear to the committee. He's doing this for political reasons. What you need to do is, he said in front of this committee. You think your takedown of three was, prominent was epidemiologists was not political? You don't want me that to was finish, but you know what I'm going to say. Senator, that was the question. Senator, Were you political in taking down this, these three point, prominent epidemiologists? Senator Paul, if you would please, um, I'm going to allow this, uh, the, Dr. Fauci to respond. We have a number of senators yeah. who would like to ask questions, and I would like him. So Fauci has now set the stage. He's got the takedown of Rand Paul. Rand Paul is scared and is trying to interrupt him because Rand Paul knows what's coming. Oh, well, let's hear it. To be able to respond, please do. So the last time we had a committee or the time before, he was accusing me of being responsible for the death of five, four to five million people, which is really irresponsible. And I say, why is he doing that? There are two reasons why that's really bad. The first is it distracts from what we're all trying to do here today is get our arms around the epidemic and the pandemic that we're dealing with, not something imaginary. Number two, what happens when he gets out and accuses me of things that are completely untrue is that all of a sudden that kindles the crazies out there and I have life that threats upon my life harassments of my family and my children with obscene phone calls 
because people are lying about me. Now, you know, I guess you could say, well, that's the way it goes. I can take the hit. Well, it, it, it makes a difference because, as some of you may know, just about three or four weeks ago on December 21st, a person was arrested who was on their way from Sacramento to Washington, D.C., at a speed stop in Iowa. And they asked, the police asked him where he was going, and he was going to Washington, D.C. to kill Dr. Fauci. And they found in his car an AR-15 and multiple magazines of ammunition because he thinks that maybe I'm killing people. So I ask myself, why would Senator want to do this? So go to Rand Paul website and you see fire Dr. Fauci with a little box that says contribute here. You can do $5, $10, $20, $100. So you are making a catastrophic epidemic for your political gain. So the Holy crap. Dr. Fauci accusing Senator Rand Paul of two things. First, trying to get him killed. And second, politicizing COVID. Yep, that's enough to make you drink bourbon. I mean, all of the bourbon. Your friend's bourbon. Your Beemaw's ver- bourbon. You know, the bottle she keeps uh, stored away in, in, in the container of flour, but you know she doesn't bake anything. That bourbon. Holy crap! That happened. That's where we're at. That's the level of insanity that people are at. Son of a gun. That is, that is not going to sit well. That is not going to sit well. But, of course, it led to a conversation because the next person up was Senator Chris Murphy, the, the beta male uh, senator from Connecticut. And he's like, thank you, Dr. Fauci, for all that you do for our people. Fauci's really bad at this. And Fauci has caused more problems than he has solved. And Fauci did indeed allow for the funding of gain-of-function research in the Wuhan lab. Facts are facts are facts. Accusing a senator of trying to get you killed? And now claiming he's politicizing because he's, you should be fired? Dude, you're, you're an elected official. I should say, not say elected. You're a, you're, you're a politico. You're a government official. Eventually, all of them have to be fired. That's part of the gig. I've got more coming up. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. So Biden, he will be speaking in Georgia. And in that speech, he's going to be talking about voting rights. And Stacey Abrams won't be there. It's very, very, very indeed strange that Stacey Abrams, who claims that she won the governor's race in Georgia that she didn't win, it was stolen from her, she has made voting rights her raison d'etre. And here is Biden to talk about it in her state, and she won't be there? Uh, that is 
is um, strange. She's saying that she had a scheduling conflict. Is that right? No, you didn't. It wasn't a scheduling conflict. It was you not wanting to be around Joe Biden. What does it say about Biden that the woman who built her career on this voting rights insanity, remember, she doesn't believe in voting rights. She believes in taking away your right to vote. She believes in mail-in voting. She believes in federal takeover of voting. She won't even admit that she lost an election that she lost. So she is, of course, attacking democracy, as we all know. When you won't admit that you lost an election, full-on attack on democracy, if you ask me. She knows that Joe Biden is poison. Joe Biden has nothing to offer and nothing to provide. And everything he touches turns to absolute crap. So she's staying away from him. That's the story. That's the story. And I think that's that's just huge. Now, as for what he's going to say in, in this speech, well, Lord, Lord, if I know. Is he going to ad- agree with, with Representative Jim Clyburn uh, about this idea that, that the states can't be trusted with the vote? It has to be a federal takeover? Because that's what they're advocating. They're advocating for a federal takeover of the election. Now, you and I can agree and disagree about levels of voter fraud and how it occurs. It can't be disagreed upon that the states are the ones who get to decide how election laws work in their states, and the federal government is trying to say no. I'm sorry, the progressives are trying to say no. And that is purposeful to an ideology, especially if you believe in, like, nonstop mail-in voting which has proven itself nationwide, I'm sorry, worldwide, I should say, not to work. We have data. The only reason to want so much mail-in voting is to be able to encourage the opportunities for fraud. That's it. So I don't know what his speech is going to bring, but uh, I guarantee you it won't be interesting. So we've seen, of course, how the reactions to COVID are changing, and they're changing because people are much more focused on the economy than they are on COVID. COVID's something that they have to live with. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you on Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. But when we take a look at how some people have reacted to Omicron, they utilize this as a justification for opportunity. We've seen uh, it's just now resolved, and we'll see if it stays resolved. The Chicago Teachers Unions, they shut down schools for, what, four or five days? It was too frightening to teach with Omicron. When Omicron presents itself with flu-like symptoms and isn't leading to mass cases of death, and we have seen that the vaccine that we have for SARS-CoV-2 doesn't necessarily work on Omicron. I know this because Pfizer's now said they're going to have an Omicron vaccine, which nobody's going to take. But we also have seen from the university system, people take advantage, schools take advantage 
of up oh, up oh, there's another variance okay no kids are on campus okay we're virtual okay we're going to do this okay we have an opportunity to ask more questions and be more invasive liz wolf joins us uh, right now uh, she writes over at the federalist and at reason.com where she is an associate editor talks very often and covers uh, free speech specifically uh, things happening in china and pandemic policy the article from last week colleges use omicron as justification for shutdowns and surveillance uh, this is the kind of stuff that that frightens you and usually does indeed come out of china we have seen the teachers liz utilize omicron and utilize COVID as an opportunity to get paid for doing less work i think that's the way people see it in a, with a very broad brush. Talk to me about what you're seeing about justification for not just shutdowns, but the very idea of surveillance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been interviewing college students all week, and it's been really astonishing all the reports of colleges who are coming back from winter break and basically switching to remote-only learning for the next two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, some of whom say, you know, it might be indefinite. It might go on for a much longer time, depending on how case counts uh, sort of react. The thing that I'm really concerned by is, A, college students are paying customers. College is incredibly expensive, and they're not getting their money's worth. These are glorified online seminars, right? The other thing I'm really concerned by is, to what degree are we really distorted in our assessments of risk? This is, you know, an 18 to 22-year-old population who, you know, many of them are vaccinated. A lot of these campuses, I'm very opposed to it, but a lot of these campuses have vaccine mandates in place. So we're talking about campuses that are 99% vaccinated. In terms of preventing severe illness and death, these kids are good, right? But for whatever reason, colleges have, have you know, seen it fit to curtail their rights, to curtail their learning, to, you know, quarantine them in their rooms whenever they get exposed, and then to also foist uh, terrible testing regimes on them that really require them to, in some cases, if they're fully vaccinated, report daily for another COVID test every single day, a daily COVID test. We are basically wasting resources, devoting them to 19-year-olds who are fully vaccinated. Hold when on really a second, what we Liz. could do as a society is focus on testing for old elderly people and making Liz, sure that they're sort of more isolated while Liz, reopening everything else back up. take a step back with me for a second. Hold on. Liz Wolf from Reason. I need you to say it again. I, I rarely interrupt. I need to hear that again. We have universities in the United States of America that are requiring vaccinated kids to test daily? Absolutely. I interviewed a, a former student at Bates College in Maine. He just graduated a few months ago. This was the requirement in place for them. So I've contacted all of these universities and asked, give me a breakdown, not just of the case counts, but of the severity of cases. You know, we need to justify this policy and nobody will respond. Well, not responding seems to be uh, the way the way you keep your, your your job. One of the reasons you came on to, to my radar and this conversation came on to my radar is that you asked a question on Twitter. Why haven't colleges like Cornell and Yale followed Life at Purdue's lead and published not just raw case counts, but information about severity of illness? Life at Purdue is Purdue University, West Lafayette, right down the road or right up the road from me here in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, and that university the president there mitch daniels i'm a fellow of the mitch daniels leadership foundation and i found that very very interesting and some people shared it with me and that's how we ended up talking what is purdue doing differently and what do, would you like to see other universities glean from that purdue has done everything differently first of all they never instituted a vaccine mandate and yet students voluntarily 88 percent of the student body is vaccinated fully so I think that's a really telling thing, that people would have opted into this regardless of mandates. 
Uh, second of all, they're publishing really, really good data that breaks down how severe these cases are. And they're actually finding that a lot of these cases are mild to moderate. There, I think, is less than 1% of cases that they've tracked on their campus that actually result in, in severe illness or hospitalization. It's really astonishing. And I think it just really bolsters the idea that this does not, this virus, you know, however bad it may be, does not affect this age group to the degree that other colleges are claiming. I think if other colleges were forced to collect that type of data or voluntarily did so, they would realize that their policies are, are essentially them overreacting to what is akin to a cold or a flu for this age group. So does it, is, doesn't the argument come from the students themselves then, talking to Liz Wolf, associate editor at Reason.com, the students themselves saying, hey, you're not utilizing this information properly. We want the answer to these questions. Aren't the students on these campuses curious about whether or not the, the university is gathering data that, that makes sense? Aren't, aren't they by nature people, regardless of their political party, worried about privacy issues? You would think, right? I think we would all hope, but that's really not the thing we're seeing on the ground. I think this is a sort of a natural outgrowth of the degree to which, you know, younger people have been coddled. And there's a lot of safetyism that we've sort of seen uh, attempting to shield them from, from consequences and from discomfort. And I think a lot of young people are legitimately, you know, true believers, uh, you know, that this is such a terrible, horrible virus that they're, it's really distorting their assessment of risk. And I, I think it's very sad because we are basically creating an entire generation of, of, you know, young adults who are going to be bad at assessing risk and who are going to be fearful and obedient. Uh, and I just really think that this is such an important formative time. They're really being deprived of something important. Let's get into how this affects universities going forward. If, you know, I, I do question whether or not parents uh, reacted uh, with, with, without enough forethought when saying absolutely get vaccinated and get back uh, to school and then you saw that kids who got vaccinated and they all enrolled uh they said okay now we're gonna go virtual you know and and and, and did pl pulled that fast one on a lot of students do universities worry that this is going to affect them uh going down the line and maybe the amount of people who show up to a campus gets reduced because if everything's going to be virtual anyway, I might as well be with Purdue Global or WGU or, or, or University of Phoenix or something like that. In my mind, that would be the best possible outcome. I actually do think there is a legitimate silver lining here, which is that for a lot of students, uh, trade school, vocational training uh, or opting out of college or taking some time to get some hard skills in the workforce and then making their decision for a lot of students, that would be preferable to the current sort of system well, we have high school guidance counselors who are coaching kids to take on obscene amounts of debt. Uh, and oftentimes kids are going into schools without a sense of what they want to major in or how that translates into making money later on. I think if this can cause a little bit of a societal realignment, if this can be a sort of accelerationist uh, thing that basically forces people to justify their decisions a little bit better and, and forces them to think a little bit more carefully about the debt they're taking on, to me, that would be a really good thing. It Let's sucks take a that moment it has to, to be this way, but I do think there is a silver lining. Uh, I I hope you're right, I, and and I, I'm a I'm a proponent of all of those uh, things. But I wanted to just take a moment to go over 
the inform the information, the data you got out of Purdue University, the Purdue COVID data, which you have posted here in the article at Reason.com, the severity of all cases, employees and students, and then all cases. I'll do the all here. If if Students voluntarily, 88% of the student body is vaccinated fully. So, I- Worried about privacy issues? You would think, right? I think we would all hope, but that's really not the thing we're seeing on the ground. I think this is a sort of a natural outgrowth of the degree to which, you know, younger people have been coddled. And there's a lot of safetyism that we've sort of seen uh, attempting to shield them from, from consequences and from discomfort. And I think a lot of young people are legitimately, you know, true believers, uh, you know, that this is such a terrible, horrible virus that they're, it's really distorting their assessment of risk. And I, I think it's very sad because we are basically creating an entire generation of, of, you know, young adults who are going to be bad at assessing risk and who are going to be fearful and obedient. Uh, and I just really think that this is such an important formative time. They're really being deprived of something important. Let's get into how this affects universities going forward. If, you know, I, I do question whether or not parents uh, reacted uh, with, with, without enough forethought when saying, absolutely, get vaccinated and get back uh, to school. And then you saw that kids who got vaccinated and they all enrolled, uh, they said, okay, now we're going to go virtual, you know, and, 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 and did pl- pulled that fast one on a lot of students. Do universities worry that this is going to affect them uh, going down the line and maybe the amount of people who show up to a campus gets reduced because if everything's going to be virtual anyway, I might as well be with Purdue Global or WGU or, or, or University of Phoenix or something like that? In my mind, that would be the best possible outcome. I actually do think there is a legitimate silver lining here which is that for a lot of students, uh, trade school, vocational training, uh, or opting out of college or taking some time to get some hard skills in the workforce and then making their decision, for a lot of students, that would be preferable to the current sort of system where we have high school guidance counselors who are coaching kids to take on obscene amounts of debt. Uh, And oftentimes, kids are going into schools without a sense of what they want to major in or how that translates into making money later on. I think if this can cause a little bit of a societal realignment, if this can be a sort of accelerationist uh, thing that basically forces people to justify their decisions a little bit better and, and forces them to think a little bit more carefully about the debt they're taking on, to me, that would be a really good thing. I want it to take a it moment to be this way, but I do think there is a silver lining. I, I hope you're right. And, and I, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of all of those uh, things. But I wanted to just take a moment to go over. The inform the information, the data you got out of Purdue University, the Purdue COVID data, which you have posted here in the article at Reason.com, the severity of all cases, employees and students, and then all cases. I'll do the all here, if if you don't mind. Twenty one percent of the cases were mild, fifty four percent were very mild, and twenty five percent were asymptomatic. So when you take a look at those numbers, the amount of moderate, significant, and severe disease, severe symptoms regarding COVID is less than 3% 
of the totality of the Purdue students and employees. Is it your take that that matches up with other universities, considering this is a northern university and colder climate, et cetera, et cetera, and it would consider to be, you know, worse for respiratory illness. Uh, and if this is the case, how is this not the national story to get colleges to give up the game and give up the ghost on living in fear and trying to scare students? I mean, I, I totally agree. I think you can probably extrapolate these statistics. I think it is somewhat likely that this is sort of a representative trend. And the thing that's really frustrating me is, like, I am a reporter. I keep contacting these, these other universities, you know, Cornell and Yale, and asking them to give me some of this information, to give me this breakdown the way that Purdue, you know, has. And, it, it, you know, I'm happy to reevaluate my thesis if I am, in fact, wrong. If they have collected this data and, you know, maybe these really, really strict policies are justified because they've had such severe cases on their campuses. That very well could be the case, and I'm happy to evaluate that honestly, uh, you know, and with integrity. But I doubt that that's the case, and I would really like to see the data. I think the reason why they haven't provided it is because they, they understand that it doesn't really provide a good justification for the extremely restrictive measures they're subjecting their students to. Liz Wolf, uh, associate editor at Reason.com. Colleges use Omicron as justification for shutdowns and surveillance. That's at Reason.com. You should be sure to check that out. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Georgia beats Alabama 33-18. I got to tell you, I mean, I'm not the biggest college football guy in the world. I got a lot to learn in the world of college football, but it happened in my beloved Indianapolis. So, of course, I was happy because people dropped $150 million plus in my city. I could not be more appreciative. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. But that's not the story. It's as if no one cares about the game. The quarterback, oh, I'm forgetting his name. Is it Stetson? Who's the quarterback for Georgia? He's got the victory in hand. He's got a cigar in his mouth. It's like, oh, my guy. My guy. No, no, no. The story is Andrew Luck former quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts because he was there. He was actually on the pregame. He was part of the College Football Hall of Fame in induction. He played at Stanford. And he does a little bit of the pregame with Robert Griffin III. They're both retired. And all people can talk about is Andrew Luck. All they can talk about is, he looks so thin. He's got the, he's got the porn mustache. He does. He does. He looked, his mustache, he could be like a Dirk Diggler understudy. It's, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Is he healthy? Is he well? Wait, is he coming back to football? Is he not? It's weird. People are really into whether or not Andrew Luck is going to return. Let me place my bet. No. I'm play, I just want to put that down and get it done. He's not coming back. He's made his money. He got the crap kicked out of him for years. Torn this, torn that. What was the big? Was it gallbladder? I forget. I forget what it was. Um, he's no longer in pain. I mean, that's what he said when he was retired. It was just too much pain, too often. I'm done. I'm out. I'm finished. And people are like, "Well, if he looks like this right now, really thin. I mean, he's lost a, a good uh, amount of weight. How how would he be ready to even play again in the NFL?" Yeah, he doesn't want it. But it's so funny how 
everybody and their mother had a had a, a take on this. When he sends out the message, like Michael Jordan that reads, I'm back, then you could talk about it. But is is this what people do? They see a guy and, and then they get into this wild, crazy speculation? How silly. Meanwhile, congratulations to Georgia. Beating Alabama ain't easy. But it's done. Alabama, by the way, already ranked at the top of the pile for 2022. Because it's, it's Alabama. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, and the book, Let's Go Bourbon. It's a great gift for Valentine's Day. Get it at Amazon.com. Let's go bourbon. This is Tony Katz today.